Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name's Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Should I have called this the Cartoonist Kayfabe courtroom, Jimmy? I was going to say, we're back in court. <laughs> yeah, that's goddamn right. I think we're going to be doing this every Monday for the foreseeable future, Jimmy. Because, uh, put the call out to the Kayfabe audience. What other depositions you guys got for us, man? Now, this case between Neil Gaiman, Todd McFarlane, is going to uh, take us a while to get through. But we do have some other uh, depositions in mind. We'll keep that going in a second, man. What kind of books are you hawking right now? Yes. Uh, these are my two big books that are in print and available now. Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive, and Plain Janes. Uh, Plain Janes, perfect for the young adult reader in your life. Street Angel, perfect for any comics fan in your life. Actually, they're both perfect for any comics fan in your life. But you can pick these up wherever you buy books. Uh, comic book shops should be able to get these for you. Get them online. Get them at bookstores wherever you buy books. You can also join me on patreon.com slash jimrug where you can see a lot of the original art for these books. Um, scripts, layouts, basically the process of how I made them, along with uh, I have a dozen out-of-print zines and mini-comics that you can download when you join my Patreon, patreon.com slash jimrug. Red Room, the anti-social network, in stores right now. These book collections are going quickly, Jimmy. Amazon bought more than half the print run, and even that stock is depleting at a rapid clip. Not sure when the reprints of this sucker are going to be able to uh, hit the this, hit this shops because of this world supply chain issues and paper is a part of that gimmick. Uh, you see this comic, Get your hands on it. If you're at the comic shop, put in that pre-order or uh, get it put on your pull list. The, the Red Room Trigger Warnings issue number one. Going to start hitting the stands on a monthly basis uh, for four months uh, in December. First issue coming out pretty early December. Thank you guys for uh, supporting the project in such a big way. Uh, the first issue is on my Patreon, fully serialized. And I'll be putting all the strips out uh, ahead of time on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash All these links are in our link tree in the description below this video. Uh, but back to what I was saying, man, the depositions and, and future uh, uh, kayfabe courtroom conversations have been coming in. Shouts to Jeet here and many other uh, cartoonist kayfabe uh, listeners and, and uh, readers out there hipped us to that issue of uh, Comics Journal with Don Simpson drawing Jim Shooter as that big old Frankenstein yes. head. Uh, depositions from as character witness by Dean Mullaney from Michael Fleischer, uh, Jim Shooter from Michael Fleischer, Harlan Ellison deposition. Dude, you ask for it, it shows up. Gary Groth depositions, Harlan Ellison depositions. I asked for both of those, and we have those on the record here in the compound. You know, like we have those mags. Uh, there are Jack Kirby depositions we need to get our hands on. Stan Lee has one out there that's proven elusive to everybody. That uh, hopefully we'll get get a copy of that. Find a way to track that down. Yes, man. Uh, we like I said today we are talking, continuing the conversation, the Neil Gaiman deposition in the case against Todd McFarlane for the for the uh, co-creator rights of Angela, the copyright and trademarks of Miracle Man. Neil Gaiman is coming to town here in Pittsburgh in May. Going to be doing a talk at the big, like, I don't know if it's been the Carnegie Music Hall downtown. Neil, come to the Kayfabe compound. Kayfabers, let that guy know that you want to shoot interview with the great Neil Gaiman. We don't have to talk about this shit. In fact, I'm sure you're legally contractually precluded from even ever addressing this because you always hear about that like non-disclosed amount can't talk about the case Opted that's like part of the settlement that's part of the deal man you have such a cool career we don't have to talk about any of this yeah bullshit. absolutely you gotta there's a lot to talk about but neil you gotta come to the office you gotta get in front of the hot lights and we need to talk some shit 
you know? Absolutely, man. One of one of the one of the most influential comics creators probably in our lifetime. Let's debrief so, a little bit from from last week's Before session. we do that, I want to just shout out Daniel Best yes. once again, the author of uh, Todd McFarlane versus the World who did the legwork to make this deposition available uh, not just to us but to the world. He has it published on his website. So, shout outs to Daniel Best. He has a few books that uh, uncover some of these court um, um, you know, some of these courtroom dramas, one with uh, DC Comics versus the creators of Superman ah. and uh, and certainly Todd McFarlane versus the world where we are getting this information from. So uh, shout outs to Daniel Best. Let's debrief a little bit, Jimmy. Uh, what, I've, what I've been doing is checking out the episode fresh before we start to uh, re record, you know, the, the next one so that I could just like listen to it for the information involved rather than the pressures of like reading this thing in front of people a uh, lot of good information and some stuff to, to debrief from for sure uh, from from last week's uh, episode and I think one of the most important pieces that I took away is something that we as creators often don't know about when we get started and these questions come up to me in comic festivals and comic conventions probably once a session at the very least uh, whenever I'm out and it's regarding copyright and trademark what do i do to copyright my characters what do i do to trademark my characters the trademark is a little bit dicey and i will actually say this ahead of time as well we make comics we're not lawyers and this is not legal advice yeah for sure at all man we're just we're yeah, having the, fun the legal advice is talk to a lawyer about yes. your trademark and copyright good conversations to have talk to them about every <laughs> contract you sign so uh, so not us yeah that said um you discover that you you make something, you have the copyright to it. That's like the great big discovery uh, that we usually find out from other creators or whatever. You know, they'll often be like, where's your comic? Let me see your comic. Uh, I remember being nervous about like, oh, so I have to like send myself a copy of my comic and never open it and do all this legwork. The truth is you make something, you own the copyright to it. So... When Neil Gaiman, in that previous deposition piece that we did, is talking about, I never signed anything that said that this stuff is work for hire. Like, that's the stuff that he's talking about. Like, I dreamt this thing up. I delivered it to a guy. No paperwork was signed. So I didn't relinquish any rights to that stuff. I own it. And, you know, I said in that other episode, like, Sure, it's logical, right, that this character from hell is going to be fighting angels and things like that. It's possible that after 300 issues and to this day, that's something that a parent wasn't dreamt up by Todd McFarlane. That's possible. Sure. You know? So he did it. He created the thing. He dreamt up the idea. Now we get into that Stan Lee, Jack Kirby argument of, like, where does the division of labor end? You mentioned that Angela is one of the, the pantheon of top characters. Uh, it's her visual. That's a McFarland piece. So this is the murky area. Yeah, I've seen some interesting stuff not related to this case, but maybe everything's related to this case. And it's the idea that anybody that draws the a comic book is the co-author of the comic book. Yeah. And I feel like I could win that debate with from that point of view because you do put so much in it. And comics maybe more than any visual media, relies on that comic book artist. So 
it is a very murky area. It's the reason that you have contracts. It's the reason you show those contracts to your lawyer before you sign them, uh, because this is such a murky area. Comes up. And you go to court, and now you're trying to explain to somebody that maybe has doesn't even know comic books still exist. Right. How the how the mechanics work behind them. So, man, it's it's definitely that area. It's the reason this is such a big courtroom drama. As as things rule out in this lifespan of the comics medium and the business of comics specifically this argument we're talking about right here it, it happens once a generation you had you had the kirby stan lee you had the steve gerber in the 70s uh i'm sure there was let's let's just say grendel matt wagner in the 80s or something like that you got neil gaiman and todd mcfarlane in the 90s you got kirkman and uh more in uh, the aughts with Walking Dead, this this comes up routinely, and it's always uh, on the on the basis of a successful thing. That uh, what, what's what's the uh, Ditko is getting ready for another round, right? Is that true? I'm I didn't pretty know that. sure that the uh, that the estate is has filed uh, paperwork. Mm. Like it's it's murky it's murky territory. Going through these depositions is very instructive for creators and future creators. Get the shit in writing, you know, like... Uh, I hope so, because how do you do this every generation? Like, every generation. what do you need proof-wise to get that contract together? And and listen, like, I've I've done work for higher work, design that stuff for, for uh, you know, Adult Swim, and it happened exactly the way... I'm, I'm glad that things happened the way it did, because I signed a Jack Kirby deal. I created all the visuals for something that, if it was a success, I am not entitled to anything of it. Not one piece of it. At the time, I was still absolutely in poverty, needed the loot. The difference is I don't think Kirby signed that deal. I think that's the that's deal true. that they hoist on him. Maybe yeah. the settlement uh, you know, spells those terms out. But uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, if, as a creator, you're thinking like your best case scenario if you don't have that contract is court litigation because you want the thing to work. You want it to take off and right. sell and be valuable. How does that end? Yeah. So, I don't know, man. I, I I do remember whenever I started reading Wizard and you would see little notes about, like, get a lawyer, have a contract. Um, and, you know, as a kid, it didn't mean too much. But there's a reason that everybody harps on that. Totally, man. And we are unpacking one of the messiest custody battles in the history of comics. We teased it with a feather when there was a break last episode. The name Angela was mentioned. And... Uh, we're probably going to be getting into some some other key names of Big characters. Names. And Big stuff. Names. This is getting into an all star uh, an all star episode. You have anything else to debrief, or we could just jump into things. Um, you know, we're going to start right away with some documents on Miracle Man. The yeah. one thing that I wanted to note is that this deposition is from two thousand and two. I believe that Spawn issue is nineteen ninety three. It may have started. You know, the the those guys working together may have started in nineteen ninety two. But I did want to give the context of two thousand and two. Because one thing that comes up uh, in comments is this idea of the bad guy right. in this. Who's the and, antagonist? Who's the protagonist? Right. And, you know, I don't know for sure. I don't have a strong opinion. I'm going to read more of these depositions before I decide who's what. This isn't a murder case. It isn't. You know, like this is really, we didn't have a, a clear record. Two guys went into this with different ideas. And I don't know that it was even 
you know, it's not at this level in 1993. The day after Spawn is published, or this issue of Spawn is published, is not when this is an issue. This is over time. Things escalate. McFarlane, I mean, uh, Gaiman continues working with McFarlane yeah, years exactly. after. Yeah, exactly. There's an Angela miniseries. So not just working with him, but working with the character. And that's um, after the HBO show. So, you know, that good guy versus bad guy, this is modern wrestling. You know, we don't have traditional heels and baby faces here necessarily. You have two two guys. The reason it goes through several rounds of court is because, like, it isn't cut and dried as, as good guy, bad guy in this stuff. And it all comes down to, like, what were the original terms? And now it's two guys on a phone with uh, very different ideas of what what was said. People, people are taking sides. Sure. And uh, I like to think of it as when Neil Gaiman is the heel... They're thinking of like Steve Regal with the hand behind his back, like going like this, <laughs> looking at everybody with that British patois. And then like McFarlane will be like the guy on top of the mountain kind of character, the Mr. McMahon kind of dude. He's the guy you'd like to have a beer with. He's a dude. <laughs> but he's also the dude calling all the shots who has more money than God. And, uh, you know, you can hate your boss. That that kind of heel character. It's easy to hate the boss kind of character. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting mix, and I I kind of like this idea of the good guy bad guy not not being clear. We don't have those roles exactly. Why don't you unpack these documents that yes. that uh, Mister Best included uh, with the <clears throat> proceedings, man, and then we'll just launch in. Sounds stuff. good. So this is where we left off on a break, and uh, and we've got a couple of these pieces from July fifteenth, nineteen ninety seven. This is a letter from Neil Gaiman to Todd McFarlane. They've obviously had many conversations about this and Miracle Man is involved and they've come to some sort of a deal and it involves uh, Gaiman will trade his rights to Cogliostro and Medieval Spawn in exchange for Miracle Man uh, and whatever McFarlane got in terms of Miracle Man film and things from Eclipse and the Bankruptcy. Uh, after that, then they need to do some accounting on Angela. There'll be um, a bonus paid for the handover fees of those characters. And then regarding Angela... And this continues, man. It's already there in trouble with this stuff. But uh, Hill Gaiman will have exclusives to do uh, any Angela projects that he might want to do with the Todd McFarlane division of Image, uh, as well as the rights to do a one-off Angela Comics project and a one-off Medieval Spawn project, on each of which he would keep 100% of the revenue. Um, so, And these team-up projects could go to other comics companies. And there's a note in the top, and it's regarding like the, uh, the, I guess, ownership or rights or whatever to Angela, and it references the DC deal, which he's attaching to this letter. I don't think that's included uh, in these documents at this time, but it sort of speaks to so much of that early, you know, what was said on the telephone was that McFarlane was going to treat him better than the DC or Marvel would. And now we are coming back to like, we're going to settle up Angela based on the DC deal, which... Man, that seems like a dig. When you start to get uh, these these letters, man, with the little little masthead, the date is right there and everything. You better start bracing yourself. You better start putting a couple of dollars away for that for that court case, because Neil Gaiman is getting his ducks in a row right here, and he's putting things in writing and he's creating a paper trail. You know? That's exactly right. This is uh, agents and lawyers have gotten involved, and now we are going to get a contract on this. Yeah. And you just know, man, like the wording of that is probably so specific so that Gaiman doesn't give up too much and he's saying things a certain way. And you could read that as, if you were McFarlane reading that, you could read that as like, 
so you want to put your hand in my pocket and do all this Angela stuff and make all the money? Like, murky. Yeah. Murky, murky stuff, man. So the way that we play this game here is I am the voice of everybody who's not Neil Gaiman, and you handle the Gaiman role for the Neil Gaiman deposition part of our proceedings here on Cartoonist Kayfabe Court. And if you're good, Jimmy, I'm good. Let's do it. All right. Question. When you were working on issue nine, when you did the script for issue nine, among the people that appeared in the story in issue nine, there were three characters that you have claimed in your lawsuit were created by you. And I think Todd has agreed in his deposition that those were characters in the script that you wrote for issue nine. Do you recall the three characters I'm talking about? Of course. One of them is the Angela character. Is that right? Yes. Cogliostro? Yes. And a character that later became known as Medieval Spawn. Medieval Spawn. Okay. Uh, let me just restate something. We have a couple... We've been going a couple hours. Uh, we've got kind of conversational. I've talked over you a couple times, and you've talked over me, and that's natural. But if we both try to do the best we can, wait until each other's finished, it will be a lot cleaner, and we will end up doing this thing faster, too. Is that okay? Absolutely. I would like to ask you some questions about the development of those characters. Sure. And first of all, let's just start with Angela. When did you get the idea for Angela? I asked Todd to explain Spawn to me, and he said Spawn is an intelligible, or as best I remember, he said Spawn was a CIA operative. He is dead, he gets killed, he goes to hell. And the devil, who at that point he didn't have a name for, later called him... Actually, Alan Moore called him the Malbogia. He sent him back to Earth with a limited power thing, and he is training to be in the Army of Hell. It was very important he was part of the Army of Hell. And I said to Todd, okay, and who are they fighting? And Todd said, I don't know. And I thought about it a little, and I thought, well, this wasn't talking to Todd. This was on my own. I thought, well, you don't have to have an army to fight librarians. If you are putting together the Army of Hell... One assumes that you that they are there at some point to fight the army of heaven and that if you have an army, heaven's army is worse. I thought, cool, that gives me an angle. And I thought, well, is there any reason why the angel can't be female? They were up to that point. I think Todd sent me three or four issues of Spawn at that point, whatever was published. There were no women anywhere in them except for Spawn's ex-wife that I remember. I thought, well, let's create a fun female character who is a kick-ass angel and I thought it would be good to, there wasn't much up until that point. Todd didn't have a lot in terms of Spawn background story at that point. He had his situation, CIA guy dies, goes to hell, comes back, is no longer, you know, a superpowered dead thing whose life has moved on. And he had a scenario. He didn't actually have, from talking to him, it became apparent, he didn't have anywhere he was going with it, and he didn't have much in the way of background. So I thought it would be a good thing to give him background and to do the kinds of stuff for him that I would do for me in an issue of Sandman where I will set up, you know, you will toss out a dozen things knowing that in two years time or a year's time or six years time or whatever, you may need them. Kayfabe conjecture? Yes. It's awesome to get into some creative process stuff here. I love this so much. It's like a writer going to work with your creation. In this case, Todd McFarlane's creation and sort of being like, okay, we're missing this piece that you're going to need. It also reminds me of like when we read about manga series, 
and how like there's so many plates that just start spinning in the beginning and it's almost a little bit of like what's the audience react to what do i react to as to which one which threads you might grab and follow but this is really cool man this feels like a surgeon going to work on a comic book this surgeon is a writer and he's going to work on a comic book that hasn't really been written yet writers often bristle at that q a portion of their their book launches or whatever when a question comes through every time, where do you get your ideas from? And they always have a, oh, I got it from an idea of the week club, I'm a subscriber, if it fell off the back of the truck. They always give dickhead answers. So you just got to approach them legally and they can easily, <laughs> they can easily describe how they got their ideas. You know, the last thing that I that I have to say on this, it reminds me of that writing class that we took. Yeah. One of the things that I took away from that is early in the process, our instructor would say she would just fill up a notebook with questions. Yeah. I do this with stories now. I do this with projects. Like I'm working on my next book and it's sort of like, who's the printer for this? What's the size of this? What price point? You know, like it's all the stuff that I don't know, but I'm going to need to know in order to make this book a real book. Uh that feels like what Gaiman does here, where he looks at Spawn, who's Spawn's enemy, who's Spawn fighting, what's he training for? It's And it makes sense. Like often, and, and this would happen in that class, all the answers are in there, right. right? It's Spawn. It's an army of hell. Well, who are they fighting? You know, like it's very natural. He's pulling out of whatever he's got there, even if that's not very developed yet. You have a concept. Now let's go to work on it. Back to the legal stuff, though. Uh, he makes very clear to say that Todd did not know. Blank slate, I created this, man. The language is very precise in these answers, and without uh, further ado, we'll keep, keep rocking the questions. Okay, so you conceived the idea again, building on the foundation that there was an army of hell. Alan Moore had started to give some identity to that leader, and you may, you may have not even uh, known that at that point. I think at that point, I didn't know. So you came up with the idea of the angel, is that correct? Yep. And you wrote in your script whatever information was included, at least at the time, in her story, correct? There was, yes. There was also the solicitation in which that was, if memory serves, that would have been where I named her, which was done before. And you understood from the outset and throughout the process that Todd was going to be the artist who drew the visual image of the character of Angela, correct? Yes. And I understand that you sent some thumbnail sketches along with your script to sort of give an idea of how it visually might lay out as the story progresses. Is that correct? Yes. But did you hear Todd testify the other day that he drew the actual character of Angela who appeared on the cover as part of the solicitation that he submitted prior to receiving the script? Yes. Did you agree with that or is, is that how you recall it? Yes. Let me ask you then about the another question about Angela. Uh, then it's my understanding, we will talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes, that the Angela character sort of took on a life of her own, at least to the extent that she ended up getting her own three-issue miniseries about two years later. Is that right? Yes. And you were the author of all three issues of the Angela miniseries, correct? Yes. Two other characters that are central to this lawsuit uh, that you've alleged were your creations in issue nine. One is Cogliostro and one is Medieval Spawn. Is that right? Yes. I would like to ask you about Cogliostro. Go for it. Tell me how you got the idea for this character. Spawn was kind of dumb, and he was sitting, living in this alley with these burns. Maybe that should be bums. Yeah. 
And Todd had this gadget, this sort of device of his power cutter counter going down. And I had to have something for him to do in the alley while he was waiting for Angela to turn up and beat him up, which means that he has to have a conversation with somebody, which means that I wanted a... It needed to be somebody who knew a little bit more than he did. The idea being that I wanted a character who just was there in order to basically say, aha, you don't know what's going on, and there's all sorts of mysterious stuff, and furthermore, there is there are is cool things to learn. Sort of give a little exposition at, at that point about things that may have come up in the future or maybe things that happened in the past? Exactly, and in the first draft of the script, I called him Old Man, and then I thought, well, let's give him a name, and I called him Count Nicholas Cogliostro. I named him after the assumed name of Joseph Balsamo, Balsamo, who was an 18th century fraudulent magician because I thought I liked the idea of naming him after a fraud. He is an old fraud, but he is also a fraud that knows the truth. Is that character you mentioned, the assumed name of the 18th century fake magician, fraud magician, you're probably more familiar with this than I am. Uh, I've seen the name in some other literary works. It popped up in last year's movie, uh, The Affair of the Necklace, which is the old story of... That's Is that the same character? Same guy. So that's where you had the name and decided to be. It made some sense to, to draw in a name of somebody that had a fraudulent background. Were you meaning to imply that this guy is a fraud as well? Well, fraudulent and magical and no. My idea for that character, and to be honest, I have no idea how much of this Todd has or hasn't used because it's been many, many years since I've looked at a spawn. My idea for the character that I told Todd when he asked me about him was that this guy was one of the hell spawn from the dawn of time who had survived the... The idea was Todd had this whole thing set up whereby the spawns come in with a power counter and when your power counter hits zero, the devil gets you. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if there was just one of these old guys, you know, I don't ever have to run my power counter down. I don't have to run around fighting crime. I can work other ways. And he would come in sort of as Spawn's mentor wherever he needed him, just somebody. Todd didn't have anybody in the series that could come in and say anything like, aha, you shouldn't have done that. A little bit of wisdom over here for you, which gives you a plot. If you are writing a monthly comic, you need a character that will do that. You need something that will do that. So while I had Spawn stuck in the alley with a bunch of bums and... Let me just stop you right there, just so I understand. Do you visualize Cogliostro not so much as a character about whom the story was as much as a plot device to help the story move along, to help direct or lead Spawn through the path as he went forward? Is that right? As an author, you can't divide characters into characters and plot devices. Characters have a function which can be a plot device, but they are also characters. His basic function was, I wanted Spawn to have somebody to talk to, and I wanted Spawn to be, I wanted Spawn to be distracted by something, by the conversation, at the point where Angela comes up behind him and goes, whoop, which meant that I had never written a fight scene. I quite like the idea of writing a comic with shouting, hitting, and running around, which is not something I had written before, but I thought, Okay, if I'm going to do this, it has to have shape and purpose. It has to be surprising and interesting, and I need a conversation. So he was created as a plot device. Well, Angela was created as a plot device. Everybody is created as a plot device. They are part of the story, but yes, he had a function, and I assumed that it was a function that would just be the action. Again, the action of leaving behind more than I was, more than I could deal with at that point, but it would give Todd stuff that he could do stuff with. 
You said all the characters are characters. Some have plot device types of function at certain times. I don't want to mischaracterize you, but is that... Well, all characters have plot device characters. The hero is the hero. He has a function in the plot. If he meets a mysterious old man who knows something gnomic, that's a character too. He also has a function in the plot. Would you agree with me that there are characters who are more involved in a particular issue or in an ongoing story than other characters? In other words, are there major characters and minor characters? In what story? In any story. Just as a general matter, or are all characters equal in their value to the story? You were talking to somebody who made not only a living, but got huge critical recognition out of the fact that one of the things that I would do continually in Sandman was introduce somebody as a minor character and then bring them back several years later as a major character. Characters who came on for two panels would come back six years later. So if you're talking about an ongoing storyline, there's no such thing as a character who will always be a minor character because you have a story every month to fill and you are going to want to go back and use them. In fact, wouldn't it be fair to say that only until you got to the end of the story would you be able to look back and say, well, that character turned out only to be minor after all and never did come back? Yes, but the end of the story would not be the end of the issue. Correct. The end of the story would be 10 years down the line. I mean, 75 issues, as you had in Sandman, you were at Todd's deposition the other day. Again, you did hear his description of how he ultimately, in his mind, changed a Cagliostro character in future issues from the character that appeared in your script. Yes. Did you agree that that was an accurate description as far as you know how Todd treated the Cagliostro character, or do you take exception to something he said there? His description of me asking him what I wanted, putting in and him saying he needed the Cagliostro character was a lie, this anti-Moses thing. As I recall, at the end of the issue, once he had drawn it, he phoned me up and he said, Hey, this Cogliostro guy, who is he? And I said, Well, I've got this idea, you know, an old spawn and so forth. He said, Oh, I thought he was Moses. So I drew him holding this box as if he was Moses going down with wine, as if he was Moses going down from the mountain. I heard Todd say he had expanded on the character and made him. He kept saying more of a Harvard man, you know. He said, my guy was a lush, his guy went to Harvard, but characters do change. The most significant change, at least according to the response to our lawsuit, was that Todd had changed the character's name, which Todd admitted during his deposition had occurred during a letterer's error, which changed Cogliostro, Cagliostro. Cagliostro to Cogliostro. And because he couldn't remember what the character's first name was, at some point later down the line, when he had to give him a first name and didn't bother going back and checking. So that was what Mr. McFarlane testified to at his deposition as to the character's name. In any event, you would agree in subsequent issues of Spawn, the character does have a slightly different name uh, than the one you gave him. Is that correct? Due to a lettering error, absolutely. Would you agree that the character in subsequent issues had a personality that had developed in ways that were not necessarily included in your first script? All characters do that. And so that over time, as you've described in the Sandman circumstances, a character who has a relatively minor role, perhaps uh, that might be defined in terms of numbers of panels or pages in which the character appears at a later point in time, maybe years later, uh, takes on a much more substantial role. Is that correct? 
I don't understand your question. Well, I'm just trying to understand the change process you described. You talked about uh, Sandman, and I believe it was your testimony that there are times when you introduce a character who is minor. And let me ask you a question right there. When you use the term minor character who later becomes major character, do you recall this testimony? As I recall, it was you that used the phrase minor character from the beginning, but yes. Getting testy. Let me ask you, is that a word we can use just so that we understand what we are talking about and use a different one if I'm using uh, the, the wrong term? What I'm referring to, I believe you testified that there were characters that you introduce all the time and they may not have a significant role at the time you introduce them, but at, that's, at some point in the future, they come back and have a much larger role in the story. Is that, am I mischaracterizing your testimony? An example of that for me might be the angel whose name I remember possibly incorrectly as Gabrielle in issue nine. She is a minor character. In terms of issue nine, there are four major characters in it, given the body of what I wrote. I wouldn't classify any of them as minor characters. I would classify the major characters in what I wrote just by allocating speaking parts as Angela, Medieval Spawn, Spawn, and Cogliostro. The minor characters would be Gabriel and the bums in the alley, and I think that that's it for the characters in my issue. In terms of whether any of them would be important, if Gabriel, the angel to whom Angela goes and reports at the beginning, had then gone off to get her own series or then turned up in important ways as she did in, I put her in my scene in 26, I used her in the Angela miniseries. That's more taking a minor character and giving them a major role. Can you give me an example of a character in the Sandman series that was introduced in an early issue, perhaps, and came back to have a larger role uh, later in, in a later issue? Sure. I created a character called Barbie in Sandman 11 or 12. Barbie? Barbie. Bobby? B-A-R-B-I-E, like the toy. And she was a ditzy blonde who had a boyfriend named Ken, and they just thought that was so cute. And you get to see nothing of her, except that she was one of a dozen people or a half dozen people living in a big old rooming house. She had this boyfriend named Ken. Ken, They thought that was... She had this boyfriend named Ken. They thought that was cute. And in one panel, maybe two panels, you saw that she had this strange dream life where she was on this odd quest with a giant dog and then in Sandman 32, I think it was, it may have been later, it may have been 34, but you know, several years later, I came back and made Barbie this character, had been in a handful of panels and nothing important. She was scenery as far as anyone was concerned. She got her own storyline, which was called A Game of You, and she was the protagonist, and that for me would be taking a minor character and putting them on stage. When the Barbie character got her own storyline and... She's in 32 or 34, whatever it was, issue, A Game of You. Did she have character traits in that issue that were not apparent in the first issue? Of course. Characters evolve. And if they are going to bear more weight, you are going to change them. By that point, she had started, she had left her husband and had started painting chessboard designs on the side of her face and went off on this strange and wonderful dream quest, which was the subject of the story. But all characters change. All characters evolve over time. Let me ask you about Medieval Spawn, that character. Uh, when you submitted your script for issue nine, did you give that character a name? No, I just said he was, what had happened on him is I had phoned Todd and said, and I thought because Todd had this whole thing with this guy in the army of hell. And I thought, oh, okay, if you've got the army of hell, you don't just want one captain. 
This is something that the devil could have been doing for a long time. And that would give you, that would give, and my main thing was that will give Todd a lot to play with if you get bored. It's a wonderful thing not to be stuck in 1992 and having to do all your stories in 1992. You could have some past, you could have some cool stuff. So I, I phoned Todd up. I said, I have got an idea. Tell me, have there ever been any Spawn characters in the past? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, could there have been? And he said, sure, if you want. And I said, great. And so that was my, so I took that. I went, okay, Spawn is in the past. What would be romantic and what would be sort of cool if I was a 12-year-old boy? Because that was my sort of, you know, a lot of what I was trying to do with Spawn number nine was, okay, so I'm 12 or 13. What would be cool to see? And I thought, well, a knight in armor. So let's do a Spawn who is a knight in armor and that would be fun and she can kill him and it will be 800 years ago and then she is coming back to kill our guy. So he was the Spawn then. And he just had the name. Does he have a name? I just referred to him as the Spawn. And his costume is pretty similar to the modern day Spawns other than it's a suit of armor appropriate for a knight. I mean, he didn't have... Other than it's a suit of armor appropriate for a knight and not a dark one piece with chains, it's the same thing. The idea that Alan Moore had come up with that I remember Alan telling me on the phone, I don't think I had seen Alan's issue before I got to write mine just because of the way, the speed with which these things were being done. But I spoke to Alan and I remember Alan phoning up and saying, I've got a great idea. The Spawn costume is alive. Todd had asked me if he could come up with an explanation for why Todd kept forgetting and drawing the different number of spikes and chains and things on Spawn from panel to panel. So Alan's idea was, well, the costume is alive, which I just thought was a lovely idea. So I gave him, I thought, okay, we will take something like what the Spawn costume is and then reconceive it as you are a medieval knight in armor, you know? He has a different, I gave him a little backstory in the thing, not much because I didn't have, I only had 22 pages to work with, and I had... You know, he had to be dead by page eight, but I gave him a little bit of backstory. You get the feeling that he had a similar kind of story to Spawn's, but not the same. In this case, it was his sister who had somebody who was somebody who the person who was still living, who was important to him and not his wife and so forth. Other than the description you gave uh, of him in the script, did you write anything else down or draw any pictures of? Yes, I gave Todd my thumbnails. Uh, sorry, I interrupted. That's okay. Other than the thumbnails and your description of the character, the medieval, the 800-year-old Spawn character in the script, uh, did you write, did you draw any other pictures independent of the thumbnails of the Spawn character? I could conceivably have doodled them, but nobody would have seen them but me other than the thumbnails. So your entire submission for issue 9 was made up of the script and the thumbnails you attached with it, is that correct? Yes. Did the medieval Spawn character appear in issue 26? Not that I recall. Did he appear in the Angela miniseries? Uh, I think I put his helmet in there on her trophy room. The only other use that I know of that's been made of medieval Spawn was he was a number of toys. And rather to my surprise, Image put out a series with him in which I was never sent, so I never read. So you never brought him back in a later issue of Spawn that you worked on. Is that correct? He was dead. I killed him. The first thing I did was kill him. What about Cogliostro? Did you ever bring him back as a character in either issue 26 or the Angela miniseries that you worked on for Spawn? No, there was no need for him. So the only character that you brought back a second time from issue 9 were Angela and Gabriel. Is that right? 
as far as you know. Yes. And of course, Spawn appears. And Spawn. But Spawn was obviously created prior to issue 9, is that correct? Exactly. Would you agree that the character that we have been calling Medieval Spawn was a derivative work of the Spawn character, the original Spawn character? Absolutely. But Angela and Cogliostra were not derivative characters, is that correct? Yes. There is no earlier incarnation of either of those characters in Spawn issue 1 through 8, is that right? Not at all. Neil Gaiman's lawyer interjects. Uh, when you hit a chapter break, let's stop for lunch, McFarlane's uh, lawyer. Yeah, I'm thinking this is actually a good time. Let's do that. So when they have this natural break, Jimmy, I think it's a natural spot for us to uh, to call this episode a day. We got a nice uh, 35, 40 minutes into this game. Yes, uh, let's take a noon recess. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Uh, now we're getting into the nuts and bolts of creativity of putting this these comics together. We're getting some insights into, into Neil Gaiman's story uh, process. It was hard for me not to break whenever they were pointing out the lettering error as to the naming of the character. We're Man, in, I'm excited to see a letter make it into this deposition. We're in court. <laughs> I'm such a comic book process nerd. This, this lawyer is looking for any ground he can have, man, to have in their favor. And we're talking about lettering errors, man. Well, our guy, your guy was called Cagliostro. And our guy's called Cogliostro, <laughs> and he's getting paid hundreds of dollars an hour to go back and forth about uh, what, some vowels. What, what do they call that? The uh, the letter of the law. <laughs> I guess so, right? <laughs> Dot your I's, cross your T's. Um, some of the craft stuff, like the minor character stuff, I really love that section with all the writing, you know, like like Neil Gaiman really getting into some of the writing nuts and bolts. Very fun stuff. I'm keeping like a like a like a pain meter, like an energy meter uh, going in terms of like like is it in Gaiman's favor, is it in McFarlane's favor? When you start getting it to that point of derivative characters, it's leaning towards McFarlane. Oh, so it's just a suit of armor, but it's all spawn? Like, uh-oh, he, he might have to get that character in the divorce, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I, I love this. Like, I just love seeing how it's such a minor choice to be like, yeah, let's put this old spawn in there and have it to, 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 to build Angela, right? It's, um, this is... It's all pro wrestling storytelling. Like, it's amazing, but I love seeing the breakdown. Yeah, we are deep in it, man. Uh, our second episode of Cartoonist Kayfabe Courtroom was more popular than the first. Now that we're into the creative stuff, now that we're talking comics, and we're, we're getting deep into the creative process, man, I think we got a good series on our hands, Jimmy. I'm certainly entertained. <laughs> all right, till, till next week. How does that Judge Wapner stuff go? Uh... No, that's Batman. Same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> I was going to say, I'll see you in court, but I don't know who that is. <laughs> I think you're right, man. Uh, K-Fibbers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. Jimmy, what do you have out there? Join me on patreon.com slash jimrug, where you can download a dozen of my out-of-print zines and mini-comics. You can see a bunch of my original art, my scripts, uh, layouts, thumbnails, uh, lettering, all of that good stuff, and more for how I make Street Angel, Plain Janes, Octobriana, and uh, other books at patreon.com slash jimrug. Red Room, the anti-social network. Uh, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is in stores right now collecting the first uh, four issues of the anti-social network. And I'm promoting uh, issue one of Trigger Warnings, the next round of Red Room comics that are going to be hitting the stores in December. Serializing that stuff before it hits paper on my Patreon. All those links in my link tree in the description below this video. Jimmy, what else? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe 
e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video, like my Outlaw Comics uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe shirt. Jimmy, give them those merchant orders. Let's be on our way. <laughs> Read more comics. And stay the hell out of the courtroom, goddammit. Stay at your drawing table. <laughs>